Okay, turn to First Kings, First Kings chapter nine. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of King Solomon? Think about that for a minute. You think of his what'd you say? Money. Money. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. You, do you think of his wisdom, or maybe his wealth as was mentioned? Do you think of his heritage from David? Uh, what do you think? His wives, okay. A lot of W words, huh? Does anybody here ever think of Solomon the builder? One guy might, but Solomon the construction superintendent. That's, you know, a building was a major part of Solomon's uh, activities. Huge part. You may not be aware of that. In fact, the case could be made that the greatest contribution Solomon ever made to Israel was the building of the temple. Um, a lot of people think that. And it may not sound that all, all that exciting, but nevertheless, he had a great interest in building, and he built a lot of stuff, a lot of buildings and other things as well. And uh, you'll see that in this chapter tonight. Now, he didn't build it himself. He or, he's the one that was behind it. He's the one that authorized it, organized it, and all that kind of thing. He built the temple, the temple complex, many, many buildings. Chapter 9 is, is kind of loosely tied together by this theme of building, as a matter of fact. Look at chapter 9, if you look at verse, uh, it's, it's a theme actually, uh, verse nine, I think the word building or build or some form of the word build is mentioned nine times in this chapter, it's in verse 1, verse 3, verse 10, verse 15, verse 17, verse 19, verse 24, verse 25, verse 26, and so you, again and again you see the word build or building or some form of the word, and in this chapter we want to observe how Solomon's building activities relate to his life as a follower of God. You may say, what's the relationship there? Well, we'll see as we look in this chapter. We're going to talk about Solomon and his temple. Solomon and his, and his uh, building supplier, believe it or not. <laughs> Dave feels like he's at work again. Solomon and his laborers, his altar, and his ships. All these are things that, that Solomon built. First of all, Solomon and his temple. That's in the first nine verses. Now, Stephen read this for you already. Uh, the Lord made two appearances to Solomon in 1 Kings, the first is recorded in 1 Kings 3. Do you remember that? <clears throat> the Lord appeared to him and he said, Solomon, ask whatever you wish and I will grant you your request. Solomon could have asked for anything, <clears throat> but he asked for wisdom from God, the right choice. And God, and he wanted wisdom because he wanted to govern the people of Israel in a proper manner and wanted to do it as under, as under the Lord in a right way. And so he said, Lord, I, I need your wisdom. I'm you know, new to this game. I don't know what to do. I need your wisdom to understand how to rule these people. And then God gave him that wisdom. And then, uh, and then in chapter 9, he finishes his building projects, and uh, he, now the Lord appears to him the second time. Now, before we get into the purpose of the second appearance, let's look at a phrase in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now, it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The phrase, all that Solomon desired to do. That phrase literally, even the NASB side column notes it, is this, all the desire which Solomon is delighted to do. It's a really strong phrase. It's not just the desire he wanted to do. It's, it's, it's all the desire that he delighted to do. Building the temple, building the house, his own house, building a bunch of buildings in this chapter wasn't something that uh, was a passing interest he had he really wanted to do this this is the desire of his heart this is what he loved doing it's not just a passing interest that he had in building it was the overflow of his heart it was really has to do with a deep desire 
inside him to do these kind of things, and this is what he did. And, and even it goes so far, this word goes so far, desire, to talk about an emotional attachment on his part. It's emotionally attached to what he's doing. This is the passion of his heart. This is the drive behind what he's doing. He's got this tremendous desire. To show you how great a passion it was, the same verb is used in other uh, <clears throat> references in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, in Genesis 34.8, same verb for, verb, verb for desire is used to express a, a man's strong desire for a woman. You remember uh, Shechem, the son of Hamor, he goes to Jacob in Genesis 34.8, and he says, the son, I'm sorry, yeah, Hamor, the father of Shechem, says to Jacob, look, he says, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please let them marry. And so it expresses that strong desire. It's used again in Deuteronomy 21.11 of God's strong love for Israel. It says there, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection. This is a strong uh, term. God set his affection on Israel to love them. He truly loved Israel with his entire being. And so it's this great passion that's being spoken of here. Solomon conducted his building projects in, with a great passion. It was a passion of his heart. You see that more and more as you look at Solomon. It's something that's near and dear to his heart. And we're speaking of the temple in this chapter in particular and its surrounding uh, buildings, temple complex. Solomon had a great desire to do that, and guess what? The Lord let him do it. That's what it says here. Building the temple especially is the focus of the first nine verses. And, uh, and so he, he wanted to get this done. Now, why? Why was it such a passion? Of Solomon's. Why was it such a strong and great and tremendous passion that Solomon wanted to build a temple to the Lord and he wanted to do these other things? Well, he wanted a place where the Lord could be worshipped. We've seen this already as we've looked in chapters 5 through 7. The Lord, Solomon wanted a place where God to be worshipped. He wanted a place where people could pray to God. He calls, later on, it's called, the temple's called a house of prayer for all nations. He wanted a place where people could come and confess their sin. He talks about that in 1 Kings again and again. He wanted a place where people could offer sacrifices and find forgiveness of their sins. So in short, the, the, Solomon had this great desire for the Lord to be put first. The Lord was a priority in his mind and his heart. So he wanted to build this temple, and so the Lord allowed him to do that. And the Lord allowed him to fulfill all the desires of his heart, to build his own house, which took 13 years, by the way. God didn't seem to have a problem with that. He built other buildings as well. So many projects. And when I think about this verse... Um, this desire and this delighting in this desire that he had, I think that the Psalm 37.4 came to my mind, the favorite verse of many people here probably, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that's not saying that you can do whatever you want to with the Lord's approval. You know, some people think that. They can do whatever they want. Some people say to uh, a fellow believer, here's my advice to you. Um, what do you want to do with your life? Here's my advice. Do whatever's on your heart. Well, that's probably not necessarily great advice. <laughs> you, you might be filled with selfishness and then do something you shouldn't do. There's a prerequisite here, and that is you must first delight yourself in the Lord. And if you do that, then you're in a position to do the desires of all your heart. Because we're talking about, Psalm 37 talks about this. Psalm 37, by the way, also talks about trusting the Lord. It talks about committing your way into the Lord. It talks about being still before the Lord. If you're living this way, if you're putting the Lord first and you're doing his will and you're delighting him and you're desiring to do what his will is, then the Lord's desires become your desires. That's how it works. They become your desires. Solomon desired to glorify the Lord by building a temple 
unto him, for his name, it says again and again in the chapters preceding this, and, uh, and the Lord allowed him to. When you think about everything Solomon said about delighting in the Lord, glorifying God, you know, I, I see Solomon as someone who delighted himself in the Lord, and the Lord gives him the desires of his heart. I see Solomon at this time in his life, understand, at this time in his life, as someone who's a living illustration of Psalm 37.4. He's delighting in God. God is giving him the desires of his heart. Now, you remember back in chapter 8. Look back at chapter 8, verse 57. He expressed three godly desires. Now, this is the kind of guy Solomon was at this time. Uh, there's three of them there, verse 57. <clears throat> may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. First desire, and those are desires uh, uh, that you can see by the word may. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, God, Solomon's desire was that God be with them, that, they, that he enjoy God's presence, godly desire. And then in verse 58, that he may incline our hearts to himself, still following with the word may, um, expressing a desire again. Solomon's desire is that God incline his heart to God and the hearts of his people. Great desire. Third desire, verse 59, May these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night. So Solomon wanted his prayer to be heard. And so Solomon expresses godly desires. He's someone who loves the Lord, wants to serve the Lord. 1 Kings 3 says he loved the Lord when he became king. So Solomon was a man who had a heart like his father David, and we shouldn't be surprised. By the way, his father wrote Psalm 37. So no doubt he taught his son to be this way. And in all this, the Lord makes a second appearance to Solomon. In his appearance, the Lord basically has two things to tell Solomon in this second appearance. Number one, he gives him a word of assurance. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9, a word of assurance. He says, the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, he said, this is a clear answer to prayer. Solomon had said in 1 Kings 8, again and again and again, please hear our prayers. When people come to confess their sins, hear our prayers. When they come to confess this and that sin, hear their prayer. He said it again and again. Look back in chapter 8. I'll show you these again. Some of these, verse 28, quickly. It says, Solomon said, Yet have, have uh, regard to the prayer of your servant. Have regard to the prayer of your servant. Verse 30. Listen to the supplication of your servant. Verse 32, here in heaven. Verse 34, here in heaven. Verse 36, here in heaven. Verse 39, here in heaven. Verse 43, here in heaven. Verse 45, here in heaven. And so on. It goes like that throughout the whole chapter and more references. And, after, and so he's begging God to hear his prayer. He's begging God to hear the prayers of all who come to the temple to confess their sins and to get right with God. And then in chapter 9, verse 3, God says, I have heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer and your supplication which you made before me. Now, the, the fact is, when we pray with a heart yielded to God, and when we pray according to God's will, 1 John 5.14 says that he graciously hears us. That's what it says. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence. We can be confident of this. Not something that we have to wonder about. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he what? He will hear us, it says. He hears us. And that's not a blank check. Um, 
for a prayer to give any kind of prayer request to God, expected to answer. It's not a blank check for it. God does not give us everything we ask for, and that is a good thing, by the way. As the song says, uh, "One of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayer," as the great hymn of the faith says, right? And some of our prayer requests, if we got what we asked for, it proved to be our undoing. God knows what's best for us, and a lot of things we ask for are quite honestly selfish. And so that's not what I'm saying here. But when we pray according to his will, when we pray according to his word, when we're lining up with his word, what happens when, when we do that? He hears us, 1 John 5, 14 says. So listening, now you're talking, now you're on God's wavelength. You're talking uh, about his plan and his will. And then in verse 15 in 1 John 5, it says, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, that is according to his will, First, uh, verse 14 says, we know we have the request which we have asked from him. It's very important to pray according to the will of God, according to the word of God, um, because that will eliminate selfishness. And you'll put you in, in a position to, to, to be on the wavelength that God is on. So the Lord says in 1 Kings 9, 3, I have consecrated this house which you have built. Solomon, you've built this house. And this is what we're talking about, Solomon's building programs. You've built this house. I've consecrated this house as temple. I'm going to put my name there, as Solomon asked for, that God's name would be there, that God's name would be uplifted. I'll put my eyes there, my heart there perpetually. I'm blessing this effort of yours. This is exactly what I want, this temple. This is a great thing. I will bless this. I'm putting my seal of approval on this. And so this is a word of assurance for Solomon. But it's not only a word of assurance in this second appearance. There's also a word of warning A word of warning, verse 4, As for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised your father David. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, And do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and you serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. Now, if you look in this section closely, you'll see two, a couple of if-then statements. Verse 4, if you'll walk before me as your father David does. Verse 5, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom. Verse 6, but if... You and your sons turn from following me, verse 7, then I will cut off Israel from the land. Now, why bring this up now? <clears throat> Isn't everything going well for Solomon? Doesn't he, didn't he just build the temple? Didn't God just approve of all this? Didn't God just say, I've heard your prayer? I've heard your supplication. Uh, isn't Solomon leading people to seek God, as we saw in chapter 8? Isn't he setting a great example for the nation? Uh, isn't God approving of all that, Samuel, that, that, that Solomon is doing? Why give this warning now? Why, why give the warning? And I think the answer to that, as I thought about this, <clears throat> I think Solomon gave us the answer back in chapter 8. Look at verse 38 back there again. 
Solomon says, I'm really taken by this verse, by the way, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. Everybody knows the affliction of their own heart. And I told you a couple weeks ago that word means plague. Everybody knows the plague of their own heart. Everybody has a heart plagued by sin, in other words. Everybody knows it. Everybody has it. And God alone, it goes on to say, knows the hearts of all people. No one else knows the hearts of all people. God does, exactly. Exactly knows what's in their hearts. And so everybody's plagued by sin. And that being the case, the Lord knows, in one sense, we're all a walking time bomb. He knows that. He knows our hearts. He knows we have this plague of sin. The only thing that keeps us together, by the way, is his spirit and his grace. Else we all do whatever we wanted to do all the time. But God knows our hearts. He knows we're easily led astray. And so he warns us. He warns Solomon throughout this chapter. It's always warning Solomon. You might say he gives him a heads up. He says, look, Solomon, I know you built the temple. Everything's going great. You're doing a great job. However, I want to warn you. If you walk with me, everything's going to be great. However, if you go astray and you get in idolatry, things are going to go bad for you. You need to walk with me like your father David did in the integrity of his heart. Now, you know, when you see that, you think to yourself, well, wow, David, here's our problem. When we think back on Bible characters, we think of the worst thing they ever did, right? We always think this. We never think of anything else except for the worst thing they ever did. But their whole, God sees their whole life, and he sees, if he's regenerated that person, he sees that, too. He sees that. And so David, far from perfect, yes. But the, the, the point with David is his heart, holy desire to follow the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart, he tells us. But nevertheless, and, and, and rather, the Lord wanted Solomon to be this type of man. Now, verse 5 talks about the Davidic covenant, which we're constantly being reminded of ever since 2 Samuel chapter 7. We keep seeing it again and again. People over the Davidic covenant, is it conditional or unconditional? Uh, is there a condition that must be met? Or is the Lord just going to fulfill his covenant anyway? What's the answer to that question? I personally believe it's unconditional. For example, uh, Luke chapter 1 says this, the Lord God will give him, will give Christ the throne of, the, of his father David. That's Luke 1, 32 to 34, somewhere in there. The Lord God will give the, the Messiah the throne of his father David, referring back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. It says that. Now what do we do with that? We believe it. We believe it's going to happen. It says it's going to happen. We may not understand it all. We may have questions about it. Nevertheless, we believe that this is going to happen. Therefore, I believe it's unconditional. Now, having said that, I do believe that the covenant with David is not an excuse. It's not an excuse for Israelite kings to go out and do whatever they want to and depart from God because they must obey God. They've got this responsibility placed upon them. That's how God has made it. And if they depart from the Lord and they turn to idols, they're going to be punished. That's what he says. And so he gives the warning, yet at the same time, he says this is unconditional. That's just how God does it. Now, that's why people, people have a problem with this. And the problem is they can't accept voice, both sides of the coin. It's kind of like the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. Uh, people have a hard time with that. I've noticed people in our church have a hard time with that. But that's what the scripture teaches, both sides of the coin. And so... Um, I believe both are true. Now, looking at this warning, though, and seeing God step in after all this great temple building activities going on, everything's going great, and God steps in and says, wait a minute, if you depart from me, I want to warn you, bad things are going to be happening. Does this wake-up call, this is a wake-up call to Solomon, does it seem like God is raining on his parade right now? Like it's, like, uh, you know, 
is it, it seemed like uh, he is really, uh, you know, coming in and, and now bringing gloom and doom to the picture. Does it seem like that? Uh, but he says, if you turn away from me, you're going to and replace me with idol worship. There's going to be some awful consequences. By the way, let's look at those consequences first. Look at verse seven. The first thing that's going to happen if if Solomon departs from God is this: the nation is going to suffer. It's going to suffer. Verse seven says, "Then I'll cut off Israel from the land." Last sentence of verse seven: Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. I'll cut off Israel from the land if you guys blow it, basically. The word cut off is used to people who are um, cut off from the uh, covenant people of Israel. They're separated from the covenant people of Israel. In in this case here, it's used of excluding the nation of Israel from the land of Israel, taking the nation of Israel outside of the land of Israel. That is a huge thing God's saying here because the land and the people are so closely associated. They're going to be taken from the land that God gave them. After all the fighting it took to get into the land, after all they went through to get in the land, God says, I'll take you out of the land if you don't pay attention to what I'm saying. The end of verse 7 says, Israel's going to become a proverb and a byword. Proverb, in this case, is not a good thing, by the way. It means that God will make Israel a public example, an object lesson to other people of, how, of, how, of what it's like, uh, when, when, how disgraceful it can be for people to depart from God. I'm going to make you a public example an object lesson to everyone. And they can, they're going to look and say, wow, look what God did to Israel. And when, he's, when it says by word, that is a sharp cutting word like a taunt. Israel will be taunted and ridiculed by your enemies when this happens. So Israel's going to suffer if Solomon and the people uh, fail to live for God and they go into idolatry. Secondly, the temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, again, he says, the house which I consecrated... Uh, for my name I will cast out of my sight. I'm going to cast it out of my sight. The idea is, is, is one of expulsion. as when a principal maybe expels a student from the school. It's the same thought in Genesis 3.23 when uh, God, the Lord God sent the man, uh, he sent Adam from the Garden of Eden, away from the Garden of Eden, he sent him out. That's the same idea. He expelled Adam from the Garden of Eden and God's going to expel the temple from his sight. The temple that he's just blessed and he has uh, put his favor upon. Now, verse 8 explains this concept a little further of 1 Kings 9. The NASB translates it, the house, this house will become a heap of ruins. NASB, the ESV translate that, translates it that way too as well. But however, the side column again on the NASB, which is always about almost 100% always right on target, points out that the Hebrew word is not actually a heap of ruins. It's the word for high. High, high is in the sense of exalted. And that's verified by <clears throat> 2 Chronicles 7.21. 2 Chronicles 7.21 is a parallel passage to this. And it says there, As for this house which was high, which was exalted, this temple which was exalted, everybody who passes by it will be astonished. So the house, the temple which was one time was exalted as a place of worship, will become a place that is appalling for people to look at. They'll look at it and they'll say, what in the world happened to the temple after God judges them? People are going to shudder. They're going to be horrified, uh, this verse tells us. Their very body language is going to show that they're in horror of what's happened. Their feelings are going to be, uh, are gonna, are gonna be uh, easily seen by the very body language they express. It says they're going to hiss. It's kind of a, a, a whistling sound. 
And it's a sound that expresses shock at what has happened. What's happened to the temple? How, how did this happen? And they're going to say words like, like it says there in the verse, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? What in the world happened to this temple? It was so awesome and great and exalted and high and fantastic, and now it's all uh, nothing here. What happened to it? People are going to be in total dismay at the whole situation, and it's going to dawn on them that the reason these things happen is because Israel forsook the Lord, and they seized other gods. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 9 says, They adopted other gods, it says. The word adopted, a very important word, means to seize or to lay hold of, take hold of. It's not, it's not like they had an adoption process in the mix here. I don't know why they translated adopted, really, but anyway, <laughs> we'll go into translators and translations right now. They, it means they seized other gods and made them their own. They lay hold of them on purposely made other gods their own. That's what they did. The ASV of 1901 translates translate like this. They laid hold of other gods. It's exactly right. Seized other gods and said, these are the gods we're going to serve and we're going to worship. That's how it's going to be. That's how bad God says it can get if you guys depart from me. It's a, dil, a, a definite willful rejection of the Lord. And on the other hand, it's a definite willful reception of false gods. Idolatry is not a minor issue in the mind of God. It's a major issue. And if this happens... The temple that God consecrated, he says, I'm going to abandon. I'm going to abandon the temple I consecrated. And the people in verse 9 will know that are looking in that the Lord is the one who did this, who brought this about. This is a stern warning. It's a, a serious warning. There, there's, there will be no excuse if Solomon and his people fail to take this warning seriously. So though these words may seem unnecessarily harsh at this time, you know, it may seem that way to you if, if, if uh, Solomon's been doing all this praying and consecrating the temple and building the temple and so on. Nevertheless, uh, it is not a, a harsh thing here. The Lord's not being mean. He's being gracious. It's an act of grace on his part to warn people of, of coming um, consequences for, what for their disobedience. He's just telling him this. Look, Solomon, the, the most important thing is this. Walk with me. Walk with me and live for me. It always comes down to spiritual issues, doesn't it? Isn't that always the, the bottom line issue when someone comes to counsel uh, with people? The issue is always spiritual at the root of it. It always comes down to walking with God. And when we stop walking with God and we're not depending on him, he's not our priority anymore, that's where we're going to get in trouble. So you have this warning here. You know, New Testament's not without warnings. The book of Hebrews alone has five warning passages in it. So God is always warning that we're like children, aren't we? We always got to be warned. We're, we're like children who, who want to touch a hot stove. Let me touch that hot stove. I just got to do it. You know? And then God says, no, don't do that. You're going to get burned. Well, we're like that. And so we always have to be warned constantly throughout the scriptures. Solomon built the temple. But if Solomon and his people don't continue to follow God with a heart of integrity, then the temple is nothing more than just another building. It means nothing at all. And God says, I'll cast it out of my sight. And he's going to remove his lesson. He's going to remove his, uh, his favor. And he's going to make Israel an object lesson to all the peoples everywhere. And they're going to say, wow, look what God did to Israel. So Solomon and his temple. Secondly, Solomon and his building supplier. Solomon and his building supplier, verses 10 to 14. Look at verse 10. It says, it came about at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, 
Hiram, king of Tyre, has supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. Then King Solomon gave him 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. He said, I love this line. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. What are these cities which you have given me, my brother? What is this? So they were called the land of Kabul to this day, and Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Now we're still talking about building. This whole chapter is about buildings. Always, everything's being, uh, something's being built always in this chapter. Hiram, king of Tyre, as we saw earlier, I think in 1 Kings 5, is a, is a building partner with Solomon. Uh, if it weren't for, so, for, if it wasn't for Hiram um, supplying the timber and the supplies to build the temple, uh, the quality of the building material would be, would be nowhere near what it is. Uh, because Hiram had this great, by the way, Hiram, in addition to being king of Tyre, could have, been, could have ran a building supply company at the same time, apparently. He had the best timber around. Uh, he had the best, uh, the cedars of Lebanon were famous all over the world. Everybody knew about them. Great uh, timber to build with. Uh, not only did he supply cedar to Solomon, but also cypress. He also pl- supplied gold because Hiram went on the seas and did trade and traded with other nations and got gold all over the place and was always getting gold. And he brought gold to Solomon as well. So apparently here in this chapter is somewhat difficult to understand. There's a business transaction taking place between Hiram and Solomon. Solomon and the building supplier of Solomon, Hiram. Solomon gives Hiram 20 cities. These cities are up north near Tyre where uh, uh, Hiram lives in that area near Lebanon. Hiram lives in Lebanon. And so he gives him these cities. Uh, In exchange, Hiram Hiram gives Solomon gold. Do you know how much 120 talents of gold equal, by the way? They're the equivalent of four and a half tons of gold. It's a lot of gold. It sounds like quite a deal. Can you imagine owning 20 cities? Oh, by the way, I own 20 cities now. It's a lot. I mean, there's only one problem. When Hiram went to survey the cities, he says, they don't, this isn't, they don't please me. I'm not happy with this at all. He wasn't happy with the cities. His reaction to Solomon, again, what are these cities which you have given me, my brother? I love that line. My brother... I wish I could have been there to hear that. Mike once always said, I wish I could be there to hear these guys like an axe and understand what was going on and what, what, what was Paul thinking. I'd like to be there and say, I wish I could have heard that comment from Hiram right there. Um, he says, my brother, by the way, is a term that shows alliance between the two. So he calls it the land of Kabul. That's what he says. You know what I think of this place? It's like Kabul. <laughs> now, that word, the meaning of the word is in dispute, unfortunately. There's different, different suggestions as to what it means. Usually you see the phrase good for nothing. Most people think it means good for nothing. Uh, it may mean that, whether it's that, that's what it means or not is up for debate. We can safely say this. Hiram is not giving Solomon a compliment. He's not happy with what he sees at all. He's not satisfied with the land. And he makes that clear to Solomon. Not to mention the fact that according to 2 Chronicles 8.2, it looks like Hiram gave those cities back to Solomon. He didn't like them. And Solomon built cities there to, to resettle Israelites in, which tells me that there were probably Canaanites there, there before at that time. Now, I don't know why Hiram didn't like the land. Some people think because he was not an agricultural guy. He was a shipping guy. He was always on the seas. I don't know why. But on the surface, it seems like Solomon was not giving a fair deal to his building supplier. That's what it seems like. 
And if you look at verse 19 later on, it says that Hiram was king of Lebanon and Solomon was over Lebanon. He ruled over Lebanon. So Solomon had the upper hand in this relationship. And it may be that Solomon was taking advantage of Hiram in their partnership. A lot of people think that. But anyway, you slice it. Seems to me like Hiram got a raw deal from Solomon. Not a very good deal. And if that's the case, Solomon's in the wrong. If that's what happens, Solomon's in the wrong. You know, with whatever our relationship with people, we ought to show them respect, especially unsaved people, out of love for the Lord, right? We ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. I've seen so many Christians I've seen over the years mistreating unbelievers and thinking they can get away with things because they're unbelievers. It's not right. We need to treat others with respect. So how are we going to reach them for the Lord anyway if we don't do that? And we should conduct our business in the fear of God with other people, always with respect. And if Solomon wants the whole world to know the Lord, as he says he does in 1 Kings chapter 8, he might want to consider starting with Hiram, who's outside of the land of Israel, who's in Lebanon, if this is indeed the case that he's wronging Hiram. He needs to start with him. If we want to reach our, our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers with the gospel, we might want to consider showing them a little respect and treating them right and not being rude and not like, act, acting like we're better than they are because we're believers. I've seen that too. That turns people off. And so we need to watch our testimony before the, the world. And so Solomon needed to get right with his Hiram if that was the case. They work together, yes, but I'm not quite sure what's happening there. Thirdly, Solomon and his laborers. Solomon and his laborers. Now, there's two sections in this, verses 15 to 24. I know this is a strange chapter, probably, in a way. Trust me. I know it well. <laughs> it's a rather strange chapter to preach. Solomon and his laborers. Um, there's two sections here. One section discusses the buildings of Solomon, and another section discuss, discusses the laborers he used to build them. First of all, Solomon's buildings in verses 15 and 19. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> Now, this is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the house of Jerusalem, Hatzor, Megiddo, Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer in the lower Beth Horon and Baaloth and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the storage cities which Solomon had, even in the, the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land under his rule. So Solomon is building left and right. Let me just give you a brief run, a rundown of this. First of all, Solomon builds the house of the Lord, his temple. He then builds his own house. He builds a place called the Milo, M-I-L-L-O, which that was a, a, a stone terrace. That, was, that filled a depression between the city of David and the temple in a complex area. It kind of filled a hole up. It would allow, it would allow the water supply to, to be adequately fortified. By the way, the water supply in a, a city is very important back then, unless someone would come and attack it. So it helped to fortify the, the water supply. He built the wall of Jerusalem for ger- defensive purposes. He built a hot sword in Megiddo and Gezer were important cities, strategic cities that had to be rebuilt and strengthened. Gezer uh, had... It's fair share of Canaanites living there. Did you see that in verse 19 or verse 16 rather? Gezer had Canaanites living there. Now why was that? It's because Israel had failed to capture 
all the Canaanites and exterminate them just as the Lord had said to do. They were very evil people, very wicked people, and God said, I want you to exterminate all the Canaanites. They didn't do it. They disobeyed. And so they're living in Gezer here. And when Pharaoh's daughter was to marry Solomon, Pharaoh wanted a dowry to give to his daughter, and so he sent his army into Gezer to rid the land of the Canaanites. He knew that Solomon didn't want those Canaanites there, really. He knew it would make Solomon happy. <clears throat> Got rid of the Canaanites and uh, had the dowry for his daughter. Now, that's was what would make Solomon happy there was pretty sad, if you think about it. Pretty sad that <clears throat> Israel didn't do that, right? They, with God's power, were told, told to do it. They didn't do it. But you have this pagan ruler, the Pharaoh of Egypt, coming in, and he gets the job done. And he, and he set it on fire, so Solomon had to go in there and rebuild the city because of fire damage. So he rebuilt it. And he rebuilt other important cities mentioned in, in verses 17 and 18. Some cities he used as a place to store his chariots, some his horsemen, and so on. <clears throat> Solomon built whatever he needed to build. He built whatever he wanted to build. He was a builder. That's what he did. And then notice Solomon's laborers in verses 20 to 24. Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were men of war. I'm sorry, verse 20. As for all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, who are those guys? They're all the Canaanites, right? <clears throat> they shouldn't have been there. As for all these people who were not of the sons of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly because of their disobedience, from them Solomon levied forced laborers, even to this day. Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were all men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, his horsemen. <clears throat> These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people doing the work. Now Solomon gets credit for building all this stuff. <clears throat> He's the builder, it's his dream, he wants to do this. But he didn't lay one stone in the building himself. You know, you, you, you got the guys out there working hard all the time, and then you got the boss coming in who sits in the office all day, and <laughs> I know some of these people are relating to this right now. Coming over, hey, what's going on out here anyway? <laughs> and that's what, what it was like. For the most part, <clears throat> Solomon used slave labor to get the job done. That's what he used. <clears throat> where the, guess where they came from? They're from the Canaanite population that God said to exterminate. And as a result, their presence in the land was tolerated by Israel. They let them live there. They kind of tolerated them being there. They should have been exterminated, and it was not wrong for Solomon to use them as slave labor, by the way. Never says he mistreated them, by the way. But he could use them in that capacity. They could have been exterminated. Here's maybe it's better to be above ground in this case. They're slave laborers. So, but what happens here is these laborers remind us of Israel's disobedience to God, don't they? We see these laborers that are being used by Solomon, and it reminds us that, wow, Israel was disobedient. That's why Gezer was burned down, because of the Canaanites that were there. That's, they're, they're in all these cities and and the consequences of their disobedience remain here in Israel. The consequences of the disobedience of Israel remain here in the land because of the presence of the Canaanites. So Solomon makes the best of the situation. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when, you, when an act of passive disobedience comes to the forefront of your memory? What do you do? You think back on your life and you say, wow, that was not good. I shouldn't have done that. I lived that kind of lifestyle before. And something comes back to remind you of that. What do you do in those circumstances? Well, you repent of, you repent of your sin if, that's, if you haven't done that. But if you have done that, 
you committed to God because he saved you and he's forgiven you and he's shown you his grace and he has dealt with you on this issue. And so you committed to God and you, at that time in your life, you reflect on the grace of God and you thank him for his grace in your life. What else can you do? That's what you do. That's what God wants to do. You do what Paul said he did in Philippians 3. It says, forgetting those things, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Think about Paul if he would have just laid around dwelling on his past life all the time. He would have gotten nowhere at all. He didn't do that. He said, I'm going to forget what, what, I, what I did in the past. And he did some horrible things to Christians in the past. I'm going to forget about that. God saved me. I'm going to go on and serve the Lord. And that's what we need to do. We, we repent of our sin. We turn from it. And then what do we do next? We move on, right? And we serve the Lord under the grace of God, being thankful for his grace. That's, that's what we do. And one thing else to note here, Solomon obeyed Leviticus 25, which says, <clears throat> don't make slaves of your fellow Israelites. And he did that. He didn't make slaves of his fellow Israelites. The law said you can't do that. Number four, Solomon and his altar. Solomon and his altar, verse 25. By the way, don't ever preach this sermon in homiletics class. This chapter, rather. Don't ever do it. Chapter, verse 25. Now, three times in a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and on the altar, which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar, which was before the Lord. So he finished the house. Surprisingly, we have another building project here. Solomon, it says, built the altar. It, he built it for the Lord. He had the right motives in this. He wanted this to honor God, and he sacrifices three times yearly, it says, at the, at the three yearly festivals that Israel has. And so by doing this, he's, he's faithful to God, and he's obeying the obligations laid down in Exodus 23 that he's supposed to, to go to these, that he should, and all Israel should worship at these three festivals. He's doing this. And not only that, let me read you 2 Chronicles chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Chronicles 8, verse 12. 2 Chronicles 8, 12, parallel passage again. Talking about this altar. It says, Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the porch, and did so according to the daily rule. Now we're talking about more than just three yearly festivals He's involved in an everyday affair, offering them up according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbaths, the new moons, the three annual feasts, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. Now, according to the ordinance of his father David, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their duties of praise and ministering before the priest according to the daily rule and gatekeepers by their divisions at every gate for David, the man of God, is so commanded. And they did not depart from the commandment of the king to the priests and the Levites in any manner concerning the storehouses. Thus all the work of Solomon was carried out from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord and until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. So Solomon is worshiping God all year long, going to the altar and, and doing the, the duties that are prescribed by the law. He's doing this all year long. You know, he, he didn't just build this for the sake of others. He didn't build this altar just for others. He built it for himself as well. Here's the king himself participating in worship of God. Sometimes we fall into the trap of, of uh, pointing people, other people to Christ, right? But we neglect ourselves spiritual duties. We neglect to do what God wants us to do while we're pointing others to Christ. And that's kind of a bizarre thing. But Solomon didn't do that. He was doing his spiritual duties. We always have to be on guard about that kind of thing. 
Solomon didn't only point, point his nation to the Lord, but he worshiped God himself, the same we should do. And then finally, look at verses 26 to 28, Solomon and his ships. Solomon and his ships. One more building project, verse 26, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, <coughs> sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. Hiram, the guys, knew all about the sea. That's what they did. They went to Ophir <coughs> and took 420 talents of gold from there, and they brought it to King Solomon. One final project, he built ships. Solomon just doesn't just build buildings, he builds ships also. Some would say this is his navy here. I looked at this carefully, and I'm not totally sure about that because it talks about the servants of Solomon, and they're guided by the, the guys who really are the sailors, Hiram's guys, and they're doing trading out there on the seas. This looks like a business proposition to me, but they built, they built the ships in Ezion Geber, which is now today is in the Gulf of Aqaba in the south, and it gave him access to the Red Sea, where he could carry on a, a trade uh, on the seas. And it talks about getting 420 talents of gold. That's equal to 16 tons. I mean, I, if I'm Solomon, I'm hooking up with Hiram. <laughs> that guy is, 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 knows where the gold is, right? Gold is flowing freely. Israel's benefiting. They're being enriched by all this. And, and it says there again, verse 28, <clears throat> they brought the gold to who? King Solomon, right? Again, subservient to Solomon who's ruling over Lebanon. Now, I'm going I'm I'm to have to lead this, and, and we'll bring this verse up, this section up next week. It's also in chapter 10, so I'll bring it up next week. But Solomon built a lot of time uh, building many projects. That's what he did. He was a builder. He built for national defense. He built some for the resettlement, resettlement of Israelite cities. Uh, he built some for storage for military purposes. He built some for government purposes, government buildings. He built some for his own living quarters. He built one for the worship of God, the temple. These things are all good and fine and necessary, and, he, and God, he, he glorified God in all this. But for Solomon, the message is clear. He's, God said to Solomon, if you're not building up your own life spiritually, building projects are in vain. You can do all the building projects in the world you want, but if you're not building your own life spiritually, it's all in vain, and everything's going to collapse if that happens. You know, folks, tonight... We're, all of us are very busy trying to accomplish our goals, doing our jobs, doing things that we're trying to accomplish in life. But if our lives are not being spiritually built up, bad things are going to happen. God's not going to be pleased. We're not going to please him or glorify him. And I couldn't help but remind, be reminded as we close of the book of Jude and the New Testament. Jude is, the problem in Jude is the false teachers are coming in and they're gaining ground in the church. And so Jude is warning them, and they had, these false teachers had potential to, wreck, to wreak havoc on the church. And so the first thing, what is the first thing Jude instructs them to do? He says in Jude 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. He said, here's how you stop this false teaching business, false doctrine and all this. You've got to build yourself up on your most holy faith. You've got to build your life spiritually. And we have, the, we're on, we have a sure foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ, to build on. But we've got to remember this. Believers are always in the process of a building program. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. We're building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And if we're not doing that, trouble lies ahead. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 32, 
So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do what? It's able to build you up, right? It's able to build you up. If you're not in the word of God, you are not building yourself up. This is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. This is God puts this on us. We're to build ourselves up. And if you're not building yourselves up spiritually, you're no good to anybody else. I'm, not, I'm no good to anybody else. I'm not helping anybody at all. Whatever else you're, you're doing in your lifetime, keep this in mind. Whatever else you're engaging in your life, whatever other job you're engaging, whatever project, whatever business, we need to make it the greatest business of all in our lives to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, to build ourselves on, on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his word. If you succeed in every other pursuit in life and fail in this one, you miss the whole thing. None of the rest is going to matter. That is the Lord's message to Solomon in this chapter. And that's the Lord's message to us as well. The Lord must be first. Everything else is secondary. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight for your word again. And uh, we pray that we'll take it to heart tonight. We pray we won't be those who just uh, are busy ourselves with our jobs and, and the things in life that we have to do. We pray we'll look ahead beyond that to walking with you, to doing everything we do for the glory of God, to, uh, to building up ourselves in the word and in the faith, Lord, so we might be able to minister to others. We just pray you give us the grace to do this, to depend upon you in this. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.